This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. Today is Thursday, June 17th, 2021. And Rebecca, it's summertime. Summer reading is in full effect. It's going to be hot mm-hmm. here. Um, we got one of the big news, one of the big recurring news drops of the year came out Friday afternoon, one o'clock Eastern on a Friday, which I'll never understand why you would do this to announce the Pulitzer Prizes. <laughs> Theoretically, these are about media things, and you would know that's like when the White House does their news mm-hmm. dump. I've seen the West Wing. We all know this at this right. point. Monday, Tuesday morning? Well, I don't understand. Why aren't we? Anyway, that's another, <laughs> we can talk about that a little bit. So we've got that. We've got some other news. Didn't expect it to be that interesting of a week, but there's kind of some stuff going on here. Yeah, yeah. Not yet in like the dog days of summer where nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. Nothing is happening at all. But we're going to get all to that in a minute. Uh, But first, we're going to do our first sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary, you know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston and thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. I guess the first thing to say, news that is micro in the big picture, but macro for us, is that we've got a job that we're hiring for, we being bookriot.com. 
um, that might be, it's a little more generally interesting because it's more of an entry-level position, I should say. It's an editorial assistant position. It's permanent full-time, based in Portland, Oregon, here where I live. Um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Um, but if you're in, you should know something about book. Riot is maybe as much as interesting as anything. N- know something, be interested in more, more importantly, books and publishing and diversity and inclusion and professional and personal world of books. Um, talks, you know, the qualifications are pretty low as these things go. So if you're interested in working for a, a place like us, well, actually, if you're interested in working for us um, <laughs> and in being adjacent to the world of books and reading, check it out. Um, bookriot.com uh, is there a URL slash editorial dash assistant but there'll be a link yep. in the show notes there Yeah, applications um, are open through June 30th we're hoping mm-hmm. the person will be able to start in August maybe September at the latest and as Jeff said the position's based in Portland um, if you are not in Portland Oregon but you're interested in the job and willing to relocate that is something that we would be interested in exploring as mm-hmm. well with you Um, And in addition to editorial assistant types of tasks, which you can read more about in the description, this person will also be working on um, some of our tailored book recommendation service, TBR, which is like our stitch fix for books. You've heard us talk about it on the show and you've heard ads for it on the show as well. So we're looking for somebody who's broadly interested in the world of books and reading and also has um, some broad familiarity with the current literary landscape. So you need to care about books, read some books, know some stuff about books. um, And, you know, you're listening to a podcast about all of those things. So if if that is you or (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, someone that you know, I think this is an interesting position for uh, somebody coming through maybe the education world. I would love to see some librarians, booksellers, you know, especially I got to say former booksellers or someone who's who wants to be a former bookseller. This would be a great position. I mean, look, you, Jen, Amanda, Mm -hmm. Vanessa. Yep. A lot of people come up through the former bookseller ranks, um, ranks in that particular it's place. It's true. Salary is good. It's listed in the mm-hmm. uh, application there, as well as all of the benefits, which we love our bookstore friends, but I have no problem saying that the benefits <laughs> you're going to get here are much more generous than what yeah, you're not working Christmas Eve, I can tell you that much. Than what um, almost any bookstore is going to provide for you. And, and we do love booksellers. We also want you to have a good working lifestyle. Yes. Um, so take a peek, pass it to your friends. Again, applications are open till June 30th, but um, we are hoping to cast a very wide net, meet a lot of interesting folks for this one. So come work with us. So the big news this week, Pulitzer Prize being announced, and I guess really within that is the book awards. And the most prestigious of those is the Fiction Award. This year was awarded to Louise Erdrich's The Night Watchman, um, which I am sad to say I haven't made to yet. 2020 was not an awesome year for me for literary fiction, even though I like Louise Erdrich. I've read The Roundhouse, Plague of Doves, a lot of her other ones. Um, Plague of Doves, which is excellent, was also a finalist for the Pulitzer back in 2009. This is a link on our own website that Lib mm-hmm. um, spun up for us. I will get to this. Erdrich, you know, Mm-hmm. We do this from time to time when we think about who which Americans are Nobel candidates. I think we now have to put Erdrich in the first rank of oh, American Nobel candidates into the future. I'm going to have to think about that. I don't know about first rank, but I think she's on the list for sure. I mean, Whitehead's my number one. We talked about this before. He's new, mm-hmm. your number one, too. 
Yep. The other, we've got some up and comers, but Erdrich has a deep bench and you need a deep, she's got a corpus now. She's got Mm -hmm. 10, 12 books. Um, I think she, you know, an indigenous author writes about things that speak to political, very consistent. My only concern, this sounds like, um, you know, I I don't know how to use hesitation. Hesitation, yeah. I don't know how to use concern trolling properly. I realized the other day. I don't actually know what I'm talking about when I say control and trolling. I got to look that up on something. Um, my only hesitation is formally. Is it formally inventive, experimental, edge? You know, is it moving mm-hmm. form forward That's, quite enough? That's that'd be my one concern. That is what I was taking the beat about as well that the books are consistently very good technically very good such a defined voice and perspective on the world and and i am taking a pause on like but does it innovate in the craft of fiction writing in the way that the nobel prize winners tend to do on the other hand alice monroe who i also very much like lady canadian updike it's not that different from <laughs> No, I'm ser- I mean not she does a lot yeah, of different stuff, but formally you're not like, wow, Monroe, it's like mm-hmm. David Foster Wallace up in here or Zadie Smith or something where like you're really experimenting like she's innovating, but it's not necessarily form forward kinds That's of innovation. True. So that it could be your external principle or for thinking about what the qualifications are, but got a Pulitzer, another finalist, consistent as all get out. Um I don't know. I'm not sure Whitehead remains my number one pick because he does a lot of the the stuff you like about Erdrich, deep bench, interesting mm-hmm. content, politically progressive, expansive um, vision, and the formal and and gen- generic in terms of genre related uh, play and inventiveness. But once I have Colson off the board, I'm not sure who my number my number two pick is, and it might be Erdrich at this point. I don't know who my number two is at this point. Um, yeah, for Americans, sure. if you, if we'll you have, have a to... good sense of it, I don't think I'd take Erdrich over, say, Delillo, which is often now. Oh, but I, just, yeah. I think I would take Erdrich over Delillo mm-hmm. at this point. I think so. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not even talking about personally. I think personally, I still would. I'm just talking about betting markets, mm-hmm. um, which they do. They're out there. We could look. We could see what the betting markets say. Is the the the, the couple of Americans? <laughs> we should. Are, uh, Ladbrokes or Brooks or no, it's Waterstons. You pronounce it Waterstons. That's how you say Ladbrokes. <laughs> Uh, other, what else do you want to say about Erdrich or the, you want to talk about the other you know, winners on the literary side? Who else? We got sure. Here? On the literary side, the other finalists for fiction were a registry of my passage upon the earth by Daniel Mason, hmm. which I don't know anything about. So I'm going to have to, I had only heard of, I couldn't tell you one more okay. thing about that. Yeah. I'm going to have to take a peek at that and telephone by Percival Everett. And I am glad to see Percival mm. Everett get this recognition. I consistently find his work to be really interesting and understated. And I think it's that understatedness that tends to um, also be correlated with authors not having as much recognition as I think they should have. Yeah. Like understated fiction is by definition, like not shiny, flashy doing some big transformative new thing. But I think Percival Everett is like low key, just really, really excellent. And I've loved everything that I've read of his. So I'm really glad to see that recognition happen um, from the Pulitzer committee and kind of hoping that this will mean some more eyes and more attention on Percival Everett going forward. Um, I had also not read any of the 
no, no, that's not true. I've read Minor Feelings um, by Kathy Park Hong, which was one of the finalists for general nonfiction. The winner is Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898, and The Rise of White Supremacy by David Zucchino, which sounds very good and very important. And I'm also not sure that I can bring myself mm-hmm. to think about that particular thing in that much detail <laughs> right now. Um, Honestly, the big Pulitzer thing I was paying attention to this year wasn't even about books. It was for Ed Yong from The Atlantic. (laughs) I had been sort of saying for months that I really hoped to see Ed Yong win a Pulitzer for the coverage that he has done for the last 16 months, but especially through earlier days of COVID. And he won one of the ones for explanatory reporting so, so well deserved. You know, there are dozens, if not hundreds of journalists that did really critical, important public education kinds of work in their reporting through the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Ed Young is like just clear eyed and direct and really understands the science and really understands how to convey it to people who aren't scientists or epidemiologists. And I personally found so much value in his work um, in having things explained to me in a way that I could get my head around, think about my own you know, personal risk assessment and all those kinds of things that we had to do for the last 16 months. Um, really glad to see him recognized in that way. And of course, we loved his book, I Contain Multitudes, about microbes. Yes. Um, but super glad, super, super glad to see him win this. The one that stuck out to me, biography winner of the Dead Arising, mm. Life of Malcolm X by the um, by the Paines. Um, again, I don't read much straight biography. I'm always interested to see. The one I consider was a finalist, Red Comet, The Short and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath. Mm. I think that book is like 800 pages. Yeah. Like Larry biographies, I always want to read them. Like I, I was talking about uh, the Tom Stoppard one, I think, on the show a while back, the new mm-hmm. Hermione Lee one. And like 800 pages. It's just I so mean, many pages. They're, they're supposed to be... They're academic works, and they're meant to be referenced and sort of for posterity, not necessarily for readers. My dad did read the Tom Stoppard, um, Hermione mm. Lee, because my dad is me in the future, apparently. Or in <laughs> well, the at past. least you can I'm my dad see where past. you're headed. How does that work? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I also don't read a lot of straight history. A lot of the nonfiction that wins Pulitzer is not the kind of nonfiction I tend to read, because it's yeah. not popular science, generally speaking. It's not self-help, personal development, professional development. Or sort of fun, you know, narrative nonfiction in the way that th- that's where I tend to go. But I'm always interested. The one that caught my eye here, especially, is the winner franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America by Marsha Chatelaine, I believe. Um, I didn't. Mm. See, I looked for a pronunciation. I couldn't find one about the role fast food in the creation of black entrepreneurship, especially McDonald's over the last 50 years. Oh, fascinating. Sounds really, really fascinating. Um, And a a story I don't know at all. Um, I know how central fast food has been in cities, like how Transformers has been in cities and suburbs, but I've never thought, paid attention to, been told what the racial dynamics of consumption, but also purveyance of fast food, especially McDonald's has been. And the blurb has me really excited to check this out. I hope it's on audio. I'm like not clicking on Audible or Libro because I'm a little worried. This is exactly the kind of book that may not be on mm-hmm. audio. So I'm, I'm looking at it sideways. Um, but I think this is a really, I like business history. I do like business history. And this is an interesting intersection I had never considered, um, but definitely will be picking this up. I hope I can pick it up in audio. 
I also hope it's not 800 pages long. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. <laughs> yeah, don't um, click right just now. yet, so you won't have to find out. So yeah, um, those are the those are the big ones. Yeah. I think the other notable anything else you want to? I mean, yeah. we'll link to the the full list right. and you can browse. We, we don't yeah, know much more of these, but what the else other notable thing about the Pulitzers this year, again, not a book thing, was that they awarded a special citation yeah. to Darnella Frazier, who is the young woman who recorded on her phone um, the murder of George of George Floyd and then shared that video, of course, um, kicking off the protests last summer. And that really proved to be a crucial piece of evidence and of bearing witness um, to the crime that was committed there and then ultimately to um, the trial of that officer. So glad to see that recognized. Um, Certainly a recognition by the Pulitzer Committee doesn't, you know, heal or replace uh, anything that was lost in the trauma of that event but she deserves to be recognized for having done that work that public service um and for being so young as well to be having to face something like that Mm -hmm. i'm glad i'm just glad to see also that the pulitzer committee is thinking about things like this the only other one on here that I've read, I did read Minor Feelings, which was a finalist for the general nonfiction, mm-hmm. which tends to be a little closer to my yeah. center of reading interest when it comes to nonfiction, um, general nonfiction, because it can kind of capture everything. Minor Feelings, I thought was really great. I heard a lot of people talk about Minor Feelings, or maybe because of the Instagram cover is so Instagrammable, and mm-hmm. I don't know. But the one, Yellow Bird by Sierra Crane Murdoch, this book is a burner. It's amazing. If you like true crime, but also you're interested in maybe a little bit more substance on the bone of, of, of true crime, it's about a murder that happens on um, a reservation. Uh, uh, Lisa Yellowbird is the main character. Sierra Crane Murdoch is the journalist who's trying to figure out what actually happened and why. This is amazing. I think it's being made into a movie. I wouldn't be surprised if it's on the, you know, eventually we're going to talk about Oscars for something like this. It's going to be a wonderful chance for some actresses to do some interesting work, especially of different kinds of actresses that maybe don't always get these kinds of plum roles. It was really, really good. And it's very, very well written. And when I looked at the blurb that Pulitzer chose, it's uh, our boy William Finnegan, author of Barbarian Days, who knows oh. from writing some beautiful general nonfiction. So well, you uh, if you just... ever need a blurb. You just sold me on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's his blurb. I don't know a more complicated original protagonist in literature than, I think it's Liza, L-I-S-S-A, Yellowbird, or a more dogged reporter in American journalism, Sierra Crane Murdoch. That's William All right. right there. So highly check that out. That one I know is available on audio because I saw it. I did not <laughs> listen to it on audio, but I've seen it on audio. So that would be my, I can't recommend the Airdrick because I haven't read it. I mean, I can, but... I can't speak to it firsthand, um, but I think the yellow yellow bird is the one that I'm like. I think, from a general interest reader's point of view, is the star of the show of what I'm seeing here that I that I can speak to directly. Um, yeah, really good, really good, interesting list uh, to see. Don't know anything about the poetry. I always think yeah, I should pick up the poetry winner, and I never do. And yep. That's just the way. That's just the way that goes. It's like the equivalent of the stack of unread New Yorkers. Just the yeah. intention to pick up the poetry winner. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd, I'd feel better if I'd at least bought the book than a stack <laughs> of them that could pick up at some time. I don't even ever make it that far. Um, so those are the Pulitzer wonder, winners in finalists this year. Are there related to that? Are, are there bookstores that will like bundle all of the winners? Because I was just thinking I would do oh. that if it was like I would even pre-order it if there was an indie bookstore that was oh, like each year we will bundle up all of the winners of 
you know, hmm. like the, whatever the five categories are before you even know who they are. And you can pick, you can get those books from us. Because I think if I had them in my house, I would read them. But then once we're looking at this list of winners yeah. today and I'm doing the math of like, what do I want to buy and what else do I have to read? Like, there's just all that competition. But I like this idea. Maybe I'll do this. We have a way to sell books we have to a, people. If only we had some way to sell books to people <laughs> that someone here runs and is in charge of. Be weird. That'd be Gosh. great. I should start developing products, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Uh, so those the Pulitzers. Go check them out. Uh, we'll take another break here real quick. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increasingly more sus when he and Shuei barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eilin for sponsoring this episode. A couple of Trump book related things to do. Department of Justice has dropped the case against John Bolton. We talked about this story before. A little more complicated than the... I think it's maybe one degree eh, complicated. It's one degree more nuanced than the Trump administration was suing Bolton because they didn't want his book to come out, which I think is true. That is mm -hmm. true. But in reading about it then and since where Bolton was supposed to get written permission, he didn't. The judge even said that they were sympathetic to the, the Trump DOJ's case because Bolton didn't do the thing that was in his contract to do. It was basically relying on speed and the court to allow him to do it. He didn't want to have the Trump administration strike things out or object to things and slow things down. 
So he rolled the dice based on his contract, and the contract mm-hmm. seems to me, if you're the national security advisor, a reasonable one about state secrets yeah. and things like this. So yes, it's I I am very amenable, as you've probably listened on the show, to beat up on the previous administration. This one was different, and now the Biden administration, at the very least, is like you know what? At the very least, there's nothing here. I don't know if it sets any kind of precedent. I don't know anything about this, but the case is dropped. Yeah, probably for the best, but. John Bolton was not being persecuted here, I think is what I ultimately came down on um, yeah, in this particular that's, kind of way. That's where I landed on it as well. And I didn't know if it would just sort of remain an open loop forever or if somebody would formally end it. So it's interesting mm-hmm. to see, um, to just see, you know, have a bow tied on it and have the case be dropped. In other, we got a couple. Yeah, let's Trump, blow through these. Let, let, let's yeah, just, let's just blow bl- through yeah, them. Let's, yeah. Let's, yeah, let's knock through these. So Trump insists he's writing, quote, the book of all books. Um, of course. Of course, because ha- what, what, what if it was it, just I'm a sure big index also, of like every book that's ever been written? Like, here yeah. it is. Yeah. I'm sure it's tremendous as well. Um, and there's interesting coverage in The Guardian. Um, that's the piece we're looking at by Martin uh, Pengeli, I believe is how you pronounce it, that mm-hmm. Even if Trump does this, he may have difficulty getting picked up by one of the major publishing houses um, because, quote, there would be a staff uprising and it would be too hard to get a book that was factually accurate. Um, They note here that the Washington Post recorded that Trump made more than 30,573 false or misleading claims while in power. Um, If you're not a regular reader of the Washington Post's Pinocchio report feature, Mm -hmm. um, I find that to be incredibly helpful um and you know we have talked about the complications around the mike pence book from simon and schuster and how they are going to publish those books because they believe that it's important to have that perspective out there so i feel both like this is true you would have a staff uprising and you would have a hard time getting a book that was factually accurate and also i guess at this point this is cynical but i wouldn't be surprised if a publisher picked up the Trump memoir anyway, because if you're willing to do it with Mike Pence, I don't under, I don't really know why you're not willing to do it with Trump unless it's just that he was the one. He clearly crossed more of the lines yeah. and they don't want to touch it. It might be an optics thing. I hope nobody does it. But mm-hmm. if you're if you're using the same kinds of justifications that Simon and Schuster is using for publishing the Mike Pence book, you could apply them to publishing the Trump book. Not that I want anybody to it does do feel that. to me a difference of degree not in kind right? yes um but i just said what i said about trump <laughs> stuff so maybe i'm maybe i'm not the right um arbiter of that particular one i guess if again let's jump out let's let's pretend that no we can't pretend let's hold in abeyance just for a moment for thought experiment's sake the i guess the pub big big five Plus, major traditional publishers' reticence, distaste to publishing a Trump book. If you're Trump, why not self-publish your book and put it on Amazon? Take well, it. Why not do that? I, I mean, he had to close his blog because it wasn't getting enough subscribers. So maybe yeah, there is this. If you there. if you have a print book and people can buy it on Amazon, people are going to buy. I don't. Anyway, I, yeah, I. Which know. is also the best. That's also the best argument against Simon and Schuster saying we well, have to do it because important. Is <laughs> right. that if Pence put out the book and self-published it, it would be out there and people could buy it. The, there's no better time to self-publish in the history of anything than right now at scale. So this argument about we need to publish because important 
is such a canard to me mm-hmm. that not only will someone else publish it, these conservative publishers that are now springing up, like we predicted, actually, yeah. that will take up these market opportunities because they are market opportunities, they're legal, and people will buy real money for them legally. So the market's out for them as much as I wish there wasn't. You can self-publish and make millions of dollars. Let them go, go, go with whatever demon that will let you do that. Just, I yeah, so, I'm just to the point where I'm like, this is, this is all not about the thing we're actually talking about. It's just right. not about I, the thing we're talking about. I would love it if we could stop having to talk about it. And I do find it interesting that this is a degree, a difference of degree and not kind, because this piece also notes that Politico reported that senior figures at PRH Hachette, HarperCollins, Macmillan, and Simon & Schuster all said that they would not touch a Trump book. And one of them is even quoted anonymously as saying, you know, in addition to it would be too hard to get a book that was factually accurate if he can't even admit that he lost the election, then how do you publish that? And I'm fascinated by Mm -hmm. this distinction that does also imply that Simon and Schuster believes they can get a factually accurate book out of Mike Pence. And I still want to know all of the things about how that fact checking process (laughs) is going to work. Um, If that book doesn't come with like a four page addendum explaining the fact checking process, I will not be satisfied. That's true. Relatedly, Jared Kushner son-in-law of former president Donald Trump does have a book deal from HarperCollins from their broadside books, which is a conservative imprint. It will come out in early 2022. It's a memoir that um, is being touted of course, by Jared Kushner as the definitive account of the Trump presidency. So again, a different Trump of, think about that, by the way, just an interesting yeah. thought. Is I don't want to a book deal. I don't want to know what the mood is like at family dinners if they mm. have them. Um, but again, I, this, I think, is an illustration of that difference of degree that if, if it's true that senior folks at HarperCollins don't want to touch a Trump book because it won't be factually accurate, they're confident they can get one that's acceptably factually accurate out of Jared Kushner? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think they're saying is that whether or not they, can, they think they can get a factual thing there may just be less heat about getting a factual mm-hmm. thing, right? That's where the kind is different, and is the order of magnitude of heat you get for publishing Kushner is way different than Trump, rightly or wrongly. It's just going to be a way different kind of heat. And um, as far as we've seen, and this is relatively new news, came, you know, yeah. the Kushner book deal was announced on Tuesday, I believe. But there haven't, to, my, to what I've seen, there have not been like staff walkouts at HarperCollins over... The Kushner book. In well, the way that- that's important, but also I think the other thing that that reminds us of is what's going on at SNS about Pence. That like we had right. the thing, we got a couple of CARP statements, and maybe that's not good enough. Is mm-hmm. that over? Is it? Is it roiling? Is it festering? Is it done? Like that kind of went with less of a whimper than I was expecting, unless it's still internally turning over yeah. or there's other things going on because it's not out on front street anymore i don't know what happened but it's not no it's leaks not. no that's, town halls no other stuff going true, on true that there's no more leaks and no town halls and like the new york times hasn't had a follow-up to the big piece about right. how much trouble it had caused there um really interesting and really I, interesting. I wonder if it was like okay we're going forward with this and now you're in that like fallow period where you're waiting for the author to do the thing it's hard for me to fathom that this won't pop back up as an issue when someone has to publicize it. Like yeah, when, when somebody it's, has uh, when to it's work for on sale, the marketing budget. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I also wouldn't be surprised if tomorrow, I think is on the table, it's certainly possible. I think it's more towards plausible that we get an announcement some Friday at one, Pulitzer time, turns out, that 
um, SNS is like, you know what, we've decided to part ways. I think that's also possible. Mm. That maybe one reason for the silence is something's going the other way at this point. It seems very possible to me. I don't know. We'll see. If you had to bet, does well, what kind of what kind? If I said I'll give you for every hundred dollars you bet, I'll give you five hundred that the if the book doesn't come out, do you take that mm. bet? You only have to bet a hundred, and you would get five hundred if the book doesn't come out. So you're saying, is there a twenty percent chance or less? Of the book actually never coming out from SNS, yeah. it'll come out at some point. But it's from SNS or an SNS related or Random House related imprint because now they're all it's kind of a mess. Oh, right now they're all under the now same umbrella. I'm in on that. You're I think there's it. at least a twenty percent chance that something happens between now and publication that derails this for yeah. Simon. And they Schuster. sell it to Skyhorse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as seems to be the procedure. <laughs> or they could sell it to all seasons there you press. Go. Nice. Oh, we'll see. How's that for a I segue? I like it. It's like the you four like by four hundred relay around here, like Flojo coming around the corner in the eighty-eight Olympics. <laughs> Been a while since we had a good one like yeah. that. Uh, but we talked several months ago about how Kate Hartson, who had been at Hachette Book Group, um, was dismissed as the editorial director of its Center Street imprint, which was its conservative. Yeah. Uh, facing imprint. Uh, She has teamed up with Louise Burke, who is the former president and publisher of Simon & Schuster's Gallery Books Group, to launch a press specifically covering conservative issues. Um, We called it. We were not the only people who called it. This is a thing that's going to exist. There is a market. There is interest um, in these books. It's a smart business move that I would not be a part of myself. Yeah. Um, and theoretically, you will not have employee trouble because right. people know. <laughs> no, I mean, they're serious. Right. They know what they're signing yeah, up yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, no, because yeah. people know what they're signing up for. Um, I mm. feel very, may your efforts fail. Yep. But that's they out won't. there. They won't. I know. <laughs> that's why I was like, well, I'm just going to hope for it anyway. <laughs> they won't. They won't fail. <laughs> but that's, that's happening. I, it is interesting. You know, these are two names from, you know, big publishing houses with a lot of experience. Louise Burke was in publishing for 40 years before she left Simon and Schuster and she retired in 2017. So mm. it's interesting that she's like coming out Came of retirement yeah. because she is quote, increasingly concerned and somewhat outraged about what's going on in terms of free speech. Outraged. And free press. I'm sure, I'm sure her paycheck so had nothing to she, do with um, it and her shares in the nascent well, imprint and the millions of, copies yeah. just ready to sell themselves but yeah you know, well you know she has doing it for uh, the honor and you know, she hasn't been spending her retirement time reading up on what free speech actually means <laughs> well you can so, be mad but let's be let's 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 take let's be accurate here. yeah let's in take our it in stride here, here. please yeah. miss burke uh so that's a thing that's happening it'll be interesting to see if because these are folks who have reputations and like legitimized publishing experience if they will have buying power to get some of these books like does the next jared kushner book go to all seasons press uh rather than you know somebody at prh mm. who knows yeah um, let's do, I've got a couple of things to the agenda I'm going to add here, but uh, in potpourri, newsy times of thing, um, hot on the heels. I think maybe I knew this book was coming out, but you put the link in. I'm glad you did. This is a piece in People by Sam Gillette about another Bourdain-related book. And I think this is maybe as interested as it's going to be until there's maybe a big bio 
mm-hmm. anyone ever does a you know kind of a Dave Itzkoff kind of bio of Bourdain, which would be uh, he wrote the Robin oh, Williams yeah. biography, which I thought was excellent, a pop culture reporter um, and biographer. I, I'd like to see that one. The other people could do it, but that's the first name that came to my mind. Mm-hmm. But Tom Vitale, who was Bourdain's traveling producer for decades, maybe I'm not yes. sure exactly when a they while. started working together, but. Part of Parts Unknown, part of No Reservations, um, right alongside doing... You you might imagine, if you know Bourdain at all, what that job actually meant, which is Bourdain was always on the move, which maybe should have been a sign in hindsight, I think Mm -hmm. is maybe something else. Um, But he was right there, and he's going to talk about what it was like and then what happened in 2018 and what his life has been like since. I think this is the kind of intimate portrayal um, I'm really mm-hmm. craving, but also was right along every step or most of the steps of the way of Vitaly was right there. And, you know, some of, you know, famously, you know, um, Boswell's biography of Samuel Johnson is a literary work because of the watcher versus watched, you know, Nick mm-hmm. Carraway Gatsby, that dynamic can really work if done well. And this is the right, this is the Carraway to Gatsby here. Um, and has the kind of closeness over time, but now, distance from it and i think that it's now three years later than trying to do something earlier it sounds like vitaly was bereft understandably so yeah um to the point where he couldn't work um and had to rethink his career identity the whole bit this could be a real wallop i think and i think i'll sign up for this wallop i'm gonna be interested in this particular kind of pain i guess i am also in for this. Um, I read a similar book earlier this year by Jeff Gordon Year about traveling the world with Renee Redzepi of Noma. Mm. Um, that book is called Hungry. And I loved that perspective. Like Redzepi is an interesting guy. He talks about himself in other places. And getting the perspective of a journalist who traveled the world with him while he was, you know, putting together projects and enduring, you know, personal setbacks and all kinds of things was was really fascinating and I know a lot less about Rene Redzepi than I know about Bourdain uh, going into this so I think reading about him from somebody who was so close to yeah. the work and the work was so defining for who Anthony Bourdain was that th- those working relationships I think had to have been really formative for Bourdain and for the people that he worked mm-hmm. with and yeah I'm I'm just probably you know prepared to have a five alarm snot bomb all the way through yeah. this um, but I'm glad to see it coming out. Um, last couple of things. One more sponsor, and then I've got a couple more things to throw okay. at you. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at 
LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. I'm not sure if you've read this or not. It's certainly, it's one of those go read this situations. Um, one of the bylines is from Jody Cantor, which we talked about as mm. the author, one of the co-authors of um, She Said, but a very long, eye-opening, not what you, investigative report into Amazon's hiring practices and... Mm-hmm state of the world with what it means to work with for around um, Amazon on the fulfillment side. I'm not sure I'm surprised by anything here except to see the scale. It's easy to say $1.5 trillion company. It's easy to understand. I get a bunch of boxes, people I know. It's all where people talk about it. Maybe one of, if not the most famous brand in North America and maybe the world at this point. But what that actually means in terms of the infrastructure and the consequences of that infrastructure and the way they've scaled up and the way they've tried to make things independent and surveyed and automatized to the point that I think the slug here is not the whole story, but it gives you a sense of the kinds of situations that this me- that this brings up or, you know, that Amazon is worried about running out of hireable workers because they're so big and yeah. they turn through people. Like there that's... might not be enough people to hire to do what we need to do. And that's the kind of market saturation that I've never heard of before. Like we really might run out of people that we can hire and make our company. Yeah, it's market saturation and that it's hard for them to retain people yes. because of the Decisions working conditions. And the and, conditions yeah. Right. The only other time that I've even heard of somebody talking about a model like that is when people talk about pyramid schemes and how like yeah. if you actually do the math when someone is recruiting at the beginning of a pyramid scheme that you're going to get six, six people and each of them is going to get six people and each of them is then going to get six mm-hmm. people very rapidly it gets to like oh you have to recruit like the entire population of yeah, the world right, exactly. to yeah. this thing if it's going to work and Amazon is big enough that they might need just a floppity jillion workers, but also their practices make it so difficult for them to retain Mm -hmm. workers that they're going to run out of folks. So it's both like, are we getting too big because there aren't enough people? And it's not really that. It's are there not enough people who are willing to come do this work for us or whom we haven't... In the way they asked to do it under the circumstances. Yeah, who haven't already worked here and decided to leave. (laughs) Yeah. Which, if that doesn't make you take a good hard look at how you're doing things... Interesting that Bezos... Did Bezos know this? was coming out he's like you know it'd be a nice i think i'm ready to spend more time with my family i mean uh you know 
No, Vezus is so good, so no one's so no part of this that he's going to space. That's how far away right. he's trying to get from and this And maybe store. he'll stay there. You know. What H.R. Hammond in Contact just floated around. Do you know that movie at all? No. The Jodie Foster movie. Oh, con- in Contact. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where H.R. Mm-hmm. Hammond was like this industrialist that just lived in space right. because he could, but also it slowed down his cancer, which they never really explained. But I was like, I could see Bezos being like, you know, you know, I'm just he's out there recruiting. Actually, he needs to find workers. So he's like, you know, maybe we. Have we thought about other planets? We're running. Can out Bezos here. get with Andy Weir about identifying life on other planets? Yeah, um, we talked too in our ongoing. R. I'm throwing you into this particular basket, which I'm not sure you're a super completely oh. willing participant in my oh, fascination right. well, with Amazon's pricing of books, especially. <laughs> Like, why aren't everything discount anymore? Why is this 10? Why is this 40? What you books? I mean, I am undoubtedly in the sidecar on this, but I'm yes. not sure if I jumped in of my own accord. You got, you got the scarf flying behind you and those little <laughs> goggles and sort of riding along. Um, m- maybe the simple answer to why they don't discount as much is because they can't. Mm-hmm. You know, they need the money. If they need yeah. to pay people more, you can't give 40% or 50% and have free two-day shipping tomorrow. Um, well, and welcome to the world of retaining your workers. Yeah. If that's a thing that Amazon has to start talking right. about, you know, that's the kind of thing that a lot of businesses have to start yeah. talking about. I think we're going to see it in restaurants right now. Restaurants yes. are having a really yes. hard time yes. hiring people back after COVID and wanting to continue paying the kinds of low wages that they paid before COVID. And folks are doing a different kind of math about mm. what risk is worth it and what exposure is worth it and just what they want their working lives to be like so between the fact that you might literally run out of people and we just exited or are in the process in the u.s of exiting a global pandemic that made working conditions dangerous for folks in warehouses you, you gotta rethink some things over there yeah Amazon. you do it's it's worth um it's worth a, re- a, a serious it read really up. it it's really really, really worth is. a good read I'm um, on the happier front in the I'm and where where are we in the adaptation gold rush is a question are, are oh, we mm-hmm. what part of the curve are, we're on some part of the curve I've called um 7 out of the last zero tops <laughs> of of the adaptation <laughs> gold rush and so I'm not in that business anymore um but one that struck me as being interesting because it's an older book Okay. And it's a book nerdy's kind of book. The storied life of A.G. Fickery. Oh, I just Fickery. saw that this morning. Fickery, um, yeah. Canal Nayar, Christina Hendricks, and Lucy Hale. This is one of those book lever books, right? And it's mm-hmm. I think it's probably is it the best of that genre? I hadn't really thought about this before. Oh. It's up there. It definitely yeah. was like warm hearted, feel goody book lover books. It's, but also not like pandery, sort of right. like aren't books are great. And yeah. if you have a bookstore in your <laughs> small town, everything's better. <laughs> right. It didn't make me feel insulted when I read it, which often those books that are targeted toward book lovers makes me feel like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and again, these aren't these are pe- some of these people I know you've seen them in things, but they're not like A-list celebs. They were stars on TV shows mostly at mm-hmm. this point. Um, this to me is. Okay, well, we're really getting it all. 12-year-old <laughs> book nerd, book romantic kinds of a books. Though Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society is in the same, I'd say it's in the same cohort of book lover books that are pretty oh, good, sure. commercial fiction. Uh-huh. And that movie was pretty good and continues to be extremely popular. Or at least it, Netflix keeps trying to get me to watch it again oh, by saying recommend for you, super popular, whatever. I see it all the time when I'm not watching things on as, Netflix and just looking at thumbnails. 
as you were saying that, I was thinking, is there a movie of that? I don't know. So, oh, yeah, there which, is. It's on Netflix. Clearly, there is, and I've forgotten. Um, I don't think I've seen it, but it's, my algorithm's different, I guess. It's a pretty good adaptation. Okay. Pretty good. Ad- if this, if Storied Life is as good, the adaptation is as good as that one, people that like the book will mm-hmm. be happy. I don't know who yeah, else I this is going to be for. I don't know either. And I mean, it's a nice family movie. This is the movie that I'm going to end up lobbying for when we have to go see a movie at the holidays with Bob's parents and his whole family. Great, like, great call. <laughs> Excellent call. That's what that's for. If you don't release this joint on Thanksgiving Day. Wonderful. What point. are you doing? <laughs> Wonderful point. Um, I think those are my, my two other drop-ins is go read the Amazon piece. Um, and then if you're interested in storied life of AJ Fickery, that's out there too. Um, next week we're, we're done with bonus episodes. So as you're listening to this, we've already published our favorite question mark for that phrase (laughs) reads of the year. Um, Idiosyncratic faves, time capsule books. Um, also speaking of time capsule is, is the time capsule episode where, um, Will Forte is trying to get twilight put into the time capsule and Pawnee episode of Parks and Rec. Is it the best book-centered TV episode of all time? I w- I'm oh. interested in... There's a great Friends episode where Joey and Rachel swap mm-hmm. picks. And I would love... Joey puts the scary book in the I would freezer. love to crowdsource a list from our listeners of other TV episodes that have books central to their plot lines. A or B plot. It doesn't have to be the whole thing. Because uh, I really enjoyed both of those. And just as I'm saying, Time Capsule Books... Um, that that Will That's Forte was question. trying to get it in was is a really funny um, and warm hearted. I think ultimately warm hearted. Um, yeah, look at Twilight and, and fandom. Um, so podcast at bookride.com If you've got another one, we've got two. So those are taken. Those are off the board. I'm sure there are others. When Jed Bartlett goes to the the old bookstore mm. and sees one of the West Wing to do holiday shopping, I guess I'd put mm-hmm. that one up there as well. Um, those are three that I've got off the top of my head. Go to bookriot.com slash listen. You can navigate to the show notes for this and all episodes of the the Book Riot podcast. Plus, you can just go to their podcast player of choice. I'm sure that's how most people um, do show notes anymore, including a link to the gig as an editorial assistant with the old Book Riot. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. (laughs) 